Welcome to the Three Martini Lunch. Grab a stool next to Greg Corumbus of Radio America and Jim Garrity of National Review. Three Martinis coming up. Hey, really glad you're with us for the Tuesday edition of the Three Martini Lunch. The bad news is, well, there's a lot of bad news. The first piece of bad news is there's no good martini. Uh, then we have two more bad martinis and a, and a crazy one as we get all set for tonight's State of the Union address. I know you're excited. You're looking at the countdown clocks and everything, and you just can't wait. I'm sure you can. In fact, you're probably not going to watch. But that's one of the things we're going to be talking about here in just a little bit. So let's start with the first uh, bad martini. Kevin McCarthy, I guess given partially a little bit of a pre-buttle to the State of the Union, also a little bit of an update on the debt ceiling extension debate. He's met with President Biden. Apparently the meeting was cordial, but not a lot accomplished. Uh, McCarthy, of course, looking for uh, a path forward on more responsible spending in exchange for raising the debt ceiling. Biden doesn't seem to want to give him that. Nonetheless, uh, Kevin McCarthy explaining what's not on the table because the Biden administration has been saying that Republicans' answer to all this is to slash entitlements. McCarthy saying that is not the case. Cuts to Medicare and Social Security, they are off the table. Defaulting on our debt is not an option. But neither is a future of higher taxes higher interest rates, and an economy that doesn't work for working Americans. And so, Jim, he's correcting the Biden talking point there, which is fine. The reason this is a bad martini is because it seems more and more now that neither party has the guts or the instinct or the desire uh, to actually deal with entitlement reform because they know they're going to get crushed for it politically. Those of us old enough to remember George W. Bush early in his second term wanting to privatize, what was it, a couple percent of Social Security and allow people some private investment accounts, pilloried not only by Democrats as a risky investment scheme, but also many members of his own party. He had a wide majority in both chambers of Congress, never got off the ground. But in case you're wondering where the Democrats are on this, this issue briefly came up during the speaker vote drama last month when uh, Byron Donalds mentioned it to Joy Reid over at MSNBC. And, Jim, this has basically been the Democratic response on entitlements for a long time. Do you know that Social Security is going to be insolvent in 2035? It is not going to be. That yes, is not true. Will. That, that is, is actually not true. No, it's actually not now, true. Joy, it's actually I'm a not true. Professional. It's actually not true. But it's actually I'm not true. The financial community. I that's actually not true. That's actually not true. Social Security will go insolvent. That's actually not true. Those are the facts. That's not Should true. Should we not prepare not for true. that? So, Jim, that's, I guess, the uh, political equivalent of a four-year-old sticking their fingers in their ears and saying, la, 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 I can't hear you. Nonetheless, we're in a lot of debt. Entitlements are going to pay a, a hefty price here soon. Nobody wants to deal with it. So, yeah, I, I wish this could be the good martini. I wish that we could say McCarthy was laying out a good case of what should and should not be at issue and on the table in terms of spending cuts. Although I think most of us would look at this and say, look, Unless you're willing to look at entitlements, you're only nibbling around the edges. Is there waste in government? Sure. Would I like to eliminate it? Absolutely. And Republicans should push for it where they can. Name and shame has always been pretty effective for the most egregious pork barrel spending, the bridge to nowhere, things like that. Problem is, uh, you know, if you do that, maybe you can reduce it a little bit here, reduce it a little bit there. We've been talking about the ticking time bomb of entitlements for pretty much since we've been born, Greg, as Generation <laughs> yes. X, we've basically been hearing about this the entire time. And you get a lot of furrowed brows and a lot of white papers and a lot of bipartisan reports and blue ribbon. Oh, this is very serious. And then nothing happens. 
because it would involve telling people you can't get everything you expected to get from the government. Now, there are ways to do this that aren't particularly harmful. Means testing comes to mind, right? I mean, if you're if you're retiring as a multimillionaire, maybe you don't need as many social security benefits. Maybe you're doing okay. Maybe you don't, you know, but then, oh, but then all of a sudden it stops becoming a universal program and then, you know, that makes Democrats worry. Unfortunately, all of the incentives are towards demagoguing the issue. No one ever gets punished for kicking the can down the road on entitlement reform or uh, not refusing to address this. The people who take the Joy Reid position of there is no problem, there is no problem, there is no problem. That's not true. They always get rewarded. And uh, I was just chatting about this with some of my colleagues that for a long time, I was very much a big supporter. And in fact, I think that might be the single most important thing government can do when you look down the road 10 years, 20 years, 30 years down the road. Unfortunately, there's a question of you know, how much should the Republican Party and particularly fiscal conservatives try to drag the rest of the country kicking and screaming towards a fiscal course of action that they absolutely refuse to contemplate and consider and that they are not convinced is necessary. And I've kind of given Republicans more slack for not running on entitlement reform because the public has basically said, no, we believe in the tooth fairy. We believe that there's money under the mattress. We believe that we have enough money to cover all of these things. We believe the Joy Reid thing that everything's going to turn out just fine. We'd rather not think about this problem. Therefore, we're going to stick our head like in the sand like ostriches. And we're just going to assume it's all going to turn out okay. Uh, it's unfortunate, but that is that is the way the country has gone. So I, I, I hear, you know, I would like to see in, in a better world, McCarthy would be saying, yeah, we know these are going to be, you know, unpleasant cuts. We know no people aren't going to like them. But we want to do them in cooperation with you, Biden and, and Senate Democrats. So we're all going to do this together. We're all going to hold hands and we'd all decide to do this. We're all going to jump. Otherwise, you know, if, if anybody gets left holding the bag, they lose. Unfortunately, it doesn't happen that way because there's always somebody who's willing to come along and say, oh, I can do it by eliminating foreign aid or, oh, I can balance the budget by uh, making everything OK. And unfortunately, that's why things don't get done. This is almost a little bit of kabuki theater. We're just going to get more of this. And uh, hopefully it all collapses after uh, we after we were well into our retirement, Greg. Well, I think one of the reasons that Gen X is so cynical for, there's a lot of reasons Gen X is very cynical, but one of them is because I think many of us have just assumed for a very long time that we're going to pay all this money in and we're going to get scraps at the end, if anything at all, because we don't assume that government is going to act responsibly. And so uh, the money, the trust fund, which is stuffed full of IOUs already, uh, is not going to be there when we need it. I hope we're wrong about that, at least to some extent, but uh, I'm certainly not uh, banking on that. I mean, you shouldn't bank on Social Security as a huge <laughs> part of your retirement <laughs> anyway. But uh, yeah. uh, also, you hear people saying, oh, how am I supposed to retire on these meager Social Security? It's called supplemental income program. <laughs> right. Supplement. It's not supposed to be the only thing. You're supposed to have some savings by the time you're 65. You're supposed to have some sort of investments that will give you some, pay you some dividends to co help cover some of those cost of living expenses. It's not, the it never, government never said, oh, we're going to give you Social Security and you're going to be able to retire comfortably on this. But some reason people are like, ah, I know there's. Social Security is so stingy, you know, because there's just endless money. Yeah, exactly. No, but you're right about the Blue Ribbon Commission. I remember late in the Clinton years, back when the Republican Congress had kind of forced him uh, into, uh, you know, responsible spending. That that actually worked pretty well fiscally for a few years there. And then he had, I remember John Bro was one of the co-chairs of this. I can't remember who the Republican mm -hmm. was, but he was a moderate Democrat from Louisiana. And they came out with all these recommendations to shore up Social Security and specifically Medicare, I think. 
And then they just stuck it in the government warehouse in a folder next to the Indiana Jones vault with the uh, Ark of the Covenant in there. And then I guess top men have been working on it for the last quarter century, but nothing seems to happen. But you're right about the political fallout here as well, because after the George W. Bush experiment, nobody wanted to touch it. And then once we got to Donald Trump, he specifically said, I'm not touching that at all. And Republicans took that cue and have run with it. And now neither party has any intention of ever doing anything about it. And neither of them have shown much willingness to not spend way beyond our means either. So it's a a very bad combination. And even things like, hey, should we push back Social Security or Medicare eligibility a couple of years? You would have thought, Jim, that you were asking people to give up a limb. It's just unbelievable. But uh, nobody wants to budge on anything. And eventually something's got to give. I just don't know when. Greg, the only thing I can add to that metaphor is that at some point, the interest payments on the debt will get to the point where we, we take one look at them and we feel like our faces are melting off, like at the end of Raiders of the Lost Ark. <laughs> I just watched that over the weekend. Fantastic. Uh, really fantastic. But you know, if you're watching the size of our debt, now way north of uh, $30 trillion, I think it's even $31 trillion now, and it's causing you to drink a little bit, don't do that uh, because it's hard on your liver. So is cholesterol. So is even acetaminophen, smoking, lots of things. And it can lead to things like sluggish, fatty liver that make us gain weight and lose energy. Your liver takes care of you. It's time to take care of it. There is a solution, and it's called Liver Health Formula. It's an all-natural supplement which contains 12 clinically proven botanicals that will help recharge and protect your liver. It's manufactured right here in the United States, and it's approved by American doctors. You can try Liver Health Formula and receive five, yeah, five free gifts when you order today. First, you'll receive a free bottle of nano-powered omega-3 to keep your heart healthy. And then you'll also get four free ebooks to support every aspect of your health. Try Liver Health Formula by going to getliverhelp.com slash martini and claim your five free bonus gifts. That's getliverhelp.com slash martini. All right, Jim, on to our second bad martini now. And there's certainly an element of crazy to this as well. Uh, and that's... What exactly happened with Chinese spy balloons during the Trump administration? Who knew about it? Did we know it all? Because initially, the uh, defense of the Biden Pentagon was uh, for not shooting it down until it got to the Atlantic Ocean was, well, Trump had three of these things. He never did anything about it. Where's your talking point now? Well, then we got... uh, different arguments saying, well, actually, there were. But Defense Secretary Mattis and Mark Milley from the Joint Chiefs of Staff decided not to tell Trump because they worried about how he'd respond against the Chinese. Now we've got uh, a different explanation for what's going on here. You've got the commander of NORAD, Air Force General Glenn Van Herc, Uh, asked at a briefing whether his command had been involved in tracking previous balloons and whether he could identify differences between the most recent case and balloons dating to the Trump administration. And according to NBC News, he says, quote, I will tell you that we did not detect those threats, and that's a domain awareness gap that we have to figure out. So, Jim, one of these might be true. They obviously all can't be true. Uh, So why don't we go over to the White House briefing room and get crystal clear clarity on this from Corinne Jean-Pierre. How is it possible that this administration discovered um, at least three previous balloons that flew over the U.S. under the previous administration, but Trump officials didn't know it was happening? Yeah, so look, I think that, uh, and we have talked about this before, about how um, uh, 
the, when it um, when the PRC government surveillance balloons trans, uh, trans, trans, transited uh, the continental U.S. briefly at least three times, as you just mentioned during the president's uh, prior administration, and once that we know of the beginning of this administration's, uh, but never for this duration of time, as we know, uh, this information was discovered prior to the admin administration uh, left. Uh, but uh, the intelligence community, as I said, is prepared to give uh, give uh, briefings to key officials. Uh, but this is something. Uh, this is something. Sorry, post. But this is something that we we they did not they were not aware of as as we've just laid out. That clears it all up, Jim. Where do we stand? <laughs> you know how I often talk about you know somebody's answer being word salad. <laughs> Greg, that one was chopped word salad. <laughs> It was even smaller pieces that make less sense all put together. My favorite was transited the continental United States briefly. You know, the Concord can't do it that briefly. <laughs> you know? um, so, look, there, there are a couple of possibilities here. The first is that, first of all, according to the Wall Street Journal this morning and according to these briefings, the U.S. was not aware of these incursions by these balloons until after they'd left U.S. airspace. So it makes it sounds like they were not particularly long. Uh, one reportedly was by Florida, possibly Key West. Another one, there was a, uh, actually there was a story earlier this year about mobilizing F-22s about some sort of incursion near Hawaii uh, and then something else near Texas or, or something, I believe was the other one that was mentioned there. Well, first of all, you can't blame Trump for not responding to incursions that he was never informed about. And early, you know, on Monday, we were actually it's probably late Sunday, we were hearing from H.R. McMaster and John Bolton and Robert O'Brien, all of them saying, I was Trump's national security advisor. And no, nobody ever briefed me about any of these incidents. So what we have here is the Biden administration getting a deserved amount of grief for their response to this. We talked about this yesterday. Um, you can explain each step of their response, but it doesn't really make much of a coherent whole. And it certainly looks like the Biden administration wanted to ignore this until the Billings media had pictures of the spy balloon. So, and then when you see them saying, yeah, we didn't detect these earlier incursions until significantly later. Well, that's, that's darn ominous, right? You know, what, God forbid, what if this balloon had a bomb on it? What if this balloon had some, you know, chemical or biological weapon? You know, you can imagine a scenario where if something can penetrate you, like that's, this is the whole reason we set up NORAD, right? We wanted to know what was coming into our airspace. So this idea that we don't always detect everything coming through, well, golly, we have really good reason to be worried about that. The Biden administration probably looked at this circumstance and really seemed to say, well, the correct solution here is for us to say, hey, we shot it down and Trump didn't, right? You know, there's a reason uh, Joe Biden wears those aviator sunglasses because he's top gun, Greg. He could shoot that thing down himself, right? Oh, we're the tough ones. We're the, we're the ones who are really on the ball. It's our predecessors, the Trump administration. They're the incompetent ones. Well, based on what everything we know now, that does not appear to be the case. Uh, that And it basically raises this interesting question. Of maybe we have had China probing our air defenses, trying to figure out how sensitive our various air defense systems are, how quickly we can detect it, how quickly we can respond. Uh, look, this is all more good reason to be worried. And the idea that the Biden administration thinks they can get out of this by turning this into the usual we rock and Trump stinks rah-rah uh, stuff is probably a, a kind of, un that's more of the most unnerving aspects of all of this is that they've been caught with a, you know, potentially serious national security policy failure. And their response is, yeah, but we're better than Trump. So which is more alarming? Is it that China has been doing this and until apparently very recently we didn't know and couldn't tell? Or intelligence and defense officials did know about it, 
but didn't tell the president because that one seems to be even worse. But uh, your mileage yeah. may vary. During the Trump years, my colleague Michael Brendan Doherty, uh, who is more uh, isolation, less interventionist, shall we say, than I am, uh, would periodically point out that Trump would say things on the campaign trail or in speeches or in off-the-cuff remarks of saying, "We're bringing all the troops. We're bringing all the troops home from Afghanistan. We're getting, you know, we're ending the forever wars." And then, of course, those you know withdrawal. You know, we withdraw a certain portion of those troops. But the U.S. involvement in certain countries would not go away. And in fact, we'd send troops to Syria. We'd send troops to uh, various places in the Horn of Africa. By the way, I think those are all the right decisions. I think that basically, you know, Al Qaeda and ISIS and like other groups should always be fearing us hunting them instead of them having a free hand to operate with impunity. But the idea was that, you know, Trump would sound very non-interventionist. And then his administration was nowhere near as non-interventionist as he sounded. Now, maybe this is because Trump changed his mind. Uh, Michael's theory, which sounds very plausible to me, is that Trump intended to do this, but he never really followed through and that he was surrounded by advisors who did not share his philosophy on national security issues. And we saw some very open fights from the likes of John Bolton and H.R. McMaster and folks like that. Um, So my suspicion is, is that what, you know, what Donald Trump was saying on any given minute was not necessarily what the Trump administration's policy was that the Trump administration and that not all the information was going up the chain to the president. Now, by the way, that's not the way it's supposed to work. And in fact, you know, in a better, uh, more accountable political and policy environment, people would have realized this, that what the hell is going on? Why is the president not being told these things? But my sneaking suspicion is, is that this will be a very quickly forgotten controversy and everyone will move on because, hey, Greg, we've got really exciting things going on, like the state <laughs> of the More on that in just a moment. All right, Jim, on to our crazy martini. And you did an excellent job of uh, uh, tipping our hand here. Tonight is, as we mentioned, the State of the Union Address. And it is our crazy martini just uh, thinking about it as we sigh periodically throughout the day, knowing that we're going to have to sit through that for an hour and change probably. Uh, I mean, it's going to be a little bit better than last year because it'll be Kevin McCarthy back there instead of uh, Nancy Pelosi sitting next to Kamala Harris. So you'll kind of get the... The uh, ping pong effect, Harris will bounce up for the stuff that she loves. McCarthy will probably bounce up for some other stuff. There'll probably be a few things they agree on. Uh, you'll get the, the the applause lines that'll get everybody out of their seats with the you know the military heroes and, and, and some other folks up in the gallery, perhaps. But then the rest of it, Jim, is just kind of a tedious laundry list of policies, most of which will never happen in a divided Congress. And then we try to see how many uh, stumbles Joe Biden has along the way. What? How do you prep for this mentally? Oh, mostly through booze, Greg. <laughs> the, the dry January is over. I'm ready to enjoy wet February. Um, look, I, I guess part of the problem is, is that the, the State of the Union address doesn't generate any actual news. And only very rarely uh, in the last, God, you could probably go back three decades or so, does the State of the Union have any news or any genuinely consequential actions? Uh, Clinton gave the State of the Union shortly after the Lewinsky scandal came out. And people wondered, was he going to address it? How was the reception going to be? Um, I suppose you could say things like um, Obama calling out the Supreme Court justices and Alito mouthing not true and all that. So that's a little bit of an interesting uh, drama there. But by and large, what happens is the president announces all the stuff he'd like Congress to do. If Congress is of his party, there's a chance some of that stuff will become law. 
if Congress is controlled by the opposition party like this year, there's probably not you know, a chunk of it. Very little will get done. Although I, apparently the message is that Biden's going to try to extend his hand to the House Rep- Republicans and try to find some areas of mutual interest. You, you could hear a decent amount about China. I'm sure they're writing in a section about the balloon, although I don't expect the president to dwell on that. So you might see periods where Republicans will stand up. And of course, they'll find some relatively apolitical figures to salute. Um, But the thing is that, like, you know, it'll go on for most of the time. Biden goes on for an hour, sometimes more. And my suspicion is that within like five minutes, you'll have forgotten almost all of it. Uh, And then, you know, Sarah Huckabee Sanders is giving the Republican response. You and I have talked about how that position has been cursed for many (laughs) years. So good luck, Sarah Huckabee Sanders. And then I think like two or three days from now, nobody's going to remember it. And, you know, you saw the phenomenon during the Trump years in which Trump could be very erratic and shooting off, you know, shooting from the hip and, you know, making one provocative, controversial statement after another. And then he'd go up for the State of the Union and you'd see presidential Trump. And, you know, speaking as a guy who's often very critical of the former president, presidential Trump could be pretty darn appealing. Unfortunately, it was Trump reading off the teleprompter, usually a very well-written speech and well-delivered. And then, you know, occasionally would outrage Nancy Pelosi and she would tear it up behind her him and all that stuff. But within two or three days, Trump would go back to the guy he was. And, you know, so it was almost like kabuki theater. It was was something that really didn't have any meaning to it because it was just everybody dressing up and pretending. And that's what the State of the Union address has turned into. But almost out of tradition, people get together and feel like we have to act like it's important because it only happens once a year. Well, here we are. I will be live blogging it with the rest of the National Review crew. But no, Greg, I'm not a particularly happy camper about it. <laughs> yeah, my wife has gotten to the point of, are there bingo cards? The only way I'm sitting through this is if there's bingo cards. And so, <laughs> and so that's the thing there. What do you make of the choice of uh, Governor Sarah Huckabee Sanders here? Um, there's a lot of reasons to like the choice. She's obviously a very skilled presenter. I think the Republicans like to highlight things being done at the state level. Uh, and uh, she's certainly uh, gotten off to a, a pretty active start doing that. The downside is that she's only been in the job uh, for a month, so maybe there's not as much that she could highlight uh, as others could who have a deeper record uh, leading at the state level. But uh, in the end, like the other speech, it'll probably be forgotten pretty quickly. But uh, what was your reaction to, to her getting that slot? Well, if you like her, then you don't want her in this position. Uh, because as you and I have gone through <laughs> Rubio in the water, Jindal gave a speech that everybody kind of you know thought was terrible. You and I made up various, uh, uh, you know, pretend ones of David Palmer from 24. The idea that, like, this is a the, there's an old gypsy curse on this job and that whoever does it ends up having some terrible uh, disaster befall them. I, I actually you know, I think Huckabee Sanders will probably do a fine job. I generally like it when a governor does it kind of to emphasize the Republican belief that, you know, states are better for making decisions like this. Um, you know, I think it'll be fine. And I think, you know, when it comes to criticizing the Biden record, this is a pretty target rich environment. Not even, you know, that's not even a, a you know pun to meant the, you know, fighter jets shooting down balloons and things like that. So my suspicion is like, you know, she'll do a fine job. I just don't think it'll be particularly memorable. And I think that uh, the other thing is that probably within a couple of weeks or a couple of months, something else will happen. And this will be, you know, it'll make this seem like ancient history. Um, you know, it's again, I'd, I'd love to be proven wrong. And if, wow, this is an amazing and consequential State of the Union address, but uh, not holding my breath, Greg. Are they taking bets on whether there's a Mike Huckabee cameo and maybe he'll pitch something along the way? <laughs> Let me tell you, he'll come out for a musical number. <laughs> oh, yeah, I should tweet something like, you know, oh, who's performing at halftime at the State of the Union tonight? <laughs> Oh, good times. Probably not Sam Smith is probably my guess, but uh, we'll see. Speak of the devil. (laughs) 
Jim, on that note, good luck tonight. I, I know I'm going to be watching it, too, because we're going to be talking at least about some of it tomorrow, probably. Tomorrow's another day. We'll get there eventually. See you then. See you tomorrow, Greg. Jim Garrity, National Review. I'm Greg Columbus of Radio America. Thanks so much for being with us today. Uh, do subscribe to the Three Martini Lunch podcast if you don't already, and please tell a friend about us as well. We'd love to have them join us as well. Uh, thanks for your five-star ratings and your kind reviews. Please keep them coming. They're a huge help to us. Get us on your home devices. All you have to say is play Three Martini Lunch podcast. Follow us on Twitter. He's at Jim Garrity. I'm at Dateline underscore DC. Have a great Tuesday. Good luck watching State of the Union, and we'll see you on Wednesday for the next Three Martini Lunch.